Launch your global career in football business. Study a master's degree online with unique access to the MCG and a big-hitting Australian industry network. Brought to you by the Global Institute of Sport, who also have campuses at the iconic Wembley Stadium in London and Etihad Stadium in Manchester. Be one of the first Australians to get a football master's degree and join GIS's global network of football leaders. Apply now to start in February 2022. Learn more at gis.sport FNR. That's gis.sport FNR. Pickett, she lays it off, Teresa Polaris! It's an absolute peach! Here's driving! What a hit from Melina Reyes! Wow! And Sam Kerr has a hat-trick! Meet him up, one Well, to say the latest Matilda's performance has got tongues wagging is to understate it significantly, but not in a good way. Australia won, or Australia out, nil, South Korea won. Still can't come to terms with the result. I still can't say it out loud, apparently. In the Asian Cup, they are out uh, after a listless performance uh, against uh, a team that they'd be expected to beat on most occasions. A wonder goal from Ji So Yun and several missed chances, including one glaring open goal miss from Sam Kerr, consigning Australia to their first quarterfinal exit from the Asian Cup ever. I'm Josh Parrish. I've got, due to COVID protocols, on the Zoom call, Pakua Frimpong. I'm delighted we could get this show going, even remotely, because I want to hear your take. Welcome back to Radio Dub. It's good to be back, Josh. You know, COVID took me out, but I was, I was, I was out. I was down, but I wasn't out. So I'm, right, I'm here. I'm excited. I've got lots to say. I can't lie. Lots yeah. to say and lots of emotions. Well, take me to your instant reaction to the final whistle, uh, the other night on Sunday night uh, because, I mean, there were players basically collapsing all around the field in distraught kind of desperation and, uh, you know, the coach trying to justify his decisions in the post-match press conference and lots of criticism coming in, particularly for the manager on social media. Uh, what was your immediate thoughts, immediate reaction to the, to the performance and the defeat? So I want to preface this. Um, I saw the last 20 minutes and then watched the game like after okay. because I Rafa Nadal was playing and that's a big deal for me, you know, personally. <laughs> so watching the last 15, after the result, I was, you know, like you, there's anger and then there's like this state of calm. Like there's this calm anger that you have. Cause it's like, as an Arsenal fan, I've perfected that emotion because <laughs> I have it constantly. <laughs> I was quite annoyed, but also I could see it coming. It was very, like, predictable. Like, we've spoken on this show about the criticisms of the Matildas. I was on the national curriculum, I believe, two weeks ago, and I spoke about a plan A, B, and C, and clearly the Matildas don't have a plan A. So my, I, was, I was angry, but I look at it as a next, like a perfect opportunity to move on to a new chapter, and that's, that's, that's how I feel at the moment. Well, you're considerably further along the uh, stages of grief than I am. Uh, I think <laughs> you've you've reached kind of acceptance uh, in rapid time, but I guess that's that's part of the course as, as well, an Arsenal supporter. I wouldn't say it's acceptance. I would say it's more. 
I'm still ang- I'm still angry and I'm still trying to bargain and trying to figure out if we can, you know, if we can figure something out. But I just, I can see the silver lining. That's all I, I can see the silver lining. Well, that's a great relief to me because I was afraid this show was going to be mega depressing. Uh, but oh, I'm still angry though, Josh. Get that, let's get that, you know, let's get that right. Let's start with, with selections. The team that actually took the field, uh, were you pleased enough with, you know, given the players that we've taken to the Asian Cup, those are the ones that played in the biggest game? Or were you uh, disappointed, as maybe Melissa Barbieri pointed out, um, that Hayley Rasso didn't take the field? Was there anything in terms of selection we could have done differently for this match in particular uh, that would have taken your fancy? I wasn't overly angry at the selection choices. Um, I do, as you know, as a fan of the the FAWSL, I, I, I can understand why Bubs would have wanted uh, Hayley Razzo to play because she's played tremendously for Man City, which is one of the best teams in the world. And if she's good enough for them, she surely should be good enough for the Matildas. The selections didn't, they weren't so out of the norm that it made me like angry because we typically make substitutions anyway that we, this is usually the format, like the mm. lineup. So I wasn't bothered by that um, as I was more upset about one of the substitutions, you know, that's what bothered me. Well, let's get into that, that change. Australia really lost control of the game in, in my opinion uh, when they replaced Courtney Vine, uh, Claire Wheeler with Courtney Vine in the 56th minute. Gustafsson in his post-match presser said it was because Wheeler had a cork and she, she wasn't moving properly. Um, but of course, bringing Vine on for her moved Emily Van Egmond back into the number six position, which she's been tried in, I don't know how many times, how many of her 100 plus caps from the Tilders she's had to play there, but it's not her role. Tony G obviously disagrees and said he moved her there. One of the reasons was because she can play long-range passes. And there's nothing that this coach loves more than a long-range pass. Josh, when do we see long-range passes from the builders? <laughs> when do we see it? I- I'm, I'm looking About I 40 like... times a game, Pagur, is my answer. <laughs> what For me, I, I sent a message to our, to our group chat. When we were playing Vietnam, I said, if I ever see Emily Van Egmond playing in the number six role again, I'm going to throw something. Because I thought that's what we discovered, if anything, from this tournament, is that Emily Van Egmond isn't a number six. She plays so much better up front. So explain it to me, Josh. Explain how we as regular, we, we don't know anything about football clearly. How Tony G, this man who gets paid to know these things and his coaching staff chose to say... Emily Van Egmont in the number six role, even though in every single time she's played there, the Matildas mm. clearly haven't created anything. That's the position she should be playing. And it, it goes back to the start of this tournament when we were going there and he didn't have alternates for this number six position that if Claire Wheeler gets injured, we get put into this pickle of we, have, we are weak defensively and we struggle to move effectively going forward. That's what you get when you put Emily Van Egmont in the, in the six. I thought when you play football, you're supposed to put players in their best position and then give them the tools so they are able to play at their best ability. But this manager has shown that he's going to put people wherever he likes, putting Ellie Carpenter and Steph Catley at centre-back, taking away their best attributes and then limiting the squad. Why would you want to do that? Are we not trying to win or are we just trying to get people to have better fitness? 
Well, my thing is, why did you bring Avi Lewick if she's not going to come in for an injured player in a defensive midfield or, or centre-back role? It clearly shows why is she that, there? It clearly shows that I, my concerns, Tony G doesn't live in Australia, which I can understand because of COVID, but it means that he clearly isn't watching some of these people in the dub because if he had, he would have made different selections for this tournament and he would have seen if he needed to rejig the formation, potentially. He doesn't know because he doesn't live, he doesn't live here. And unfortunately, the Matilda, the Football Australia have put themselves into a very tight corner where they cannot get rid of Tony G because there is too, we are too close to another major tournament. We are just too close for another manager to get the opportunity to fix this squad and, you know, get their system in play that we have, we're stuck with what we're stuck with. I mean, does he even have a Paramount Plus subscription? Like, is he, is he actually watching the league? I'm not sure. I think he's, his assistants are picking the, the, the squads for him or having a big well, influence he, in that department. His assistants are picking it, and it shows that not only is Tony G on the chopping block, his, or his entire assistant, the entire makeup of his, uh, his coaching staff, if we do not, as I suspect, do well in the Women's World Cup coming up, they all should be fired. I'm sorry, but like it's clear as day. They all should be going because they all clearly. It, Tony G doesn't live in Australia, but he lives in Europe. Is he not seeing Angie Beard? Mm. Like, he's, he, there are players who are overseas that he's not seeing. There are players in Australia he's not seeing. Maybe we need the Football Australia to get a Specsavers sponsorship or OPSM, and then everybody can see what's going on. Well, if he'd been watching Melbourne Victory this season, he probably wouldn't have picked Kyra Cooney-Cross or Courtney Nevin. Yes. And he probably would have picked Alex Chidiak out of that team. For me, he hasn't been the outstanding Melbourne Victory player so far this campaign. If he'd been watching Angie Beard, he would have picked her as well because, you know, she made the team of the season. You brought up an excellent point, I believe, our last show, and you said that there is this level of comfortability within within the Matildas. Mm. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe not. And I like, I kind of saw it, but I didn't really see it. I saw it when we versed South Korea. Mm. It is a glaring problem that there are players who are just, who know they're not going to lose the position because you can't tell me that any of those players in the starting 11 or even on the bench, except for some of the fringe ones like McNamara and, and Vine, are really looking and going, oh, I'm going to lose my position heading mm. into the World Cup. They're comfortable. They're sitting at home drinking nice Mai Tais. If not, maybe a Moscow Mule. I don't know what they're drinking, Josh, but it is comfort, okay? Yeah. And it's, it's not good. We need to change. Changes are coming. I said last, last show that, you know, the storm is coming. The storm came earlier. A little test run of the storm came, and we fell. We fell. So you talk about that level of comfort. Um, this it comes back to, I guess in terms of the actual stru- uh, structure of these things, it comes back to the PFA deal that they uh, negotiated with the Federation for equal pay for the national teams, which I couldn't be more in favour of. Don't get me wrong. We should pay our national team players equally. Absolutely. But how is that money divvied up? And they chose to have a, a bespoke model for the women's team as compared to the men's. The men's get match payments if they make the... Camps they get and well they they get uh, payments if they they make the team basically if they if they play 
If they travel with the squad, they get paid. If they don't get picked, they don't get national team payments. For the women's team, they decided because women's football exists in this space where contracts aren't as secure, especially at the time they negotiated this with the NWSL and a lot of players doing the hokey-cokey fly to America, fly back to the W League, as it was then called, fly back to America. Uh, And to give players a level of certainty in that rigmarole, they decided to have national team contracts. And it's I think it's 20 players per year are contracted to the national team, regardless of whether they're selected or not. They are contracted players and there are tiers. So obviously Sam Kerr and the like are the top tier and maybe the fringe uh, Matildas would be the, the, the bottom tier. And then there are players outside of the contracts that get picked as well, of course. So, I mean, to me, that, that cements uh, and stratifies uh, the, the squad every time because they've invested in these players. How many players who are contracted are not going to get picked because the, they've already been paid? So, you know, the, the federation who is cash-strapped already, uh, are they going to urge the coach to pick based on performances or are they going to urge the coach to say, well, these are our contracted players, they make the squad, and then you can fill out the last few spots? Josh, it looks like Football Australia, they just, they're going broke. That's what's happening here. Clearly, they don't want to play for anybody else. <laughs> the money is short. Yeah, and Maybe having said we- that, how do we then make a change for the World Cup if you have to pay out not only Gustafsson, who I'm sure is on a handsome pay packet, but potentially all of his support staff as well? We're, we're locked into this now. Josh, you tweeted, and I, I criticised you in a group chat. You said that we need to have Joe Montemurra come back. Mm-hmm. And I was saying... That's that's in, that's insane. We can't get Joe Montemurra one because no offense to the Matildas, at this current stage, Joe Montemurra is too good for the Matildas. He is comfortably too good as a coach, and not every manager in world football wants to coach international football. They are not that. That's not the type of manager mm. they are. That's true. Here, Juve is building. They are building something. Juve. They they are going to be tremendous. They are already one of the best teams. So why would he want to change and come coach the Matildas who have no idea what they're doing? The Football Australia have no idea what they're doing with the team as well. Tony Gustafsson has to say, for better or worse, we are stuck. And it's not even just the problem with the Matildas at the moment. Australian football right now was in a very tricky position because if the Matildas go to this World Cup, and they do not do well, if the Socceroos do not make this World Cup, Australian football as a whole needs to really have a hard look at itself and, and really question mm. what they have done for these past few years and the decisions they've made. Some people need to be, unfortunately, losing their jobs. And we need new ideas, new fresh ideas and a clear plan for the Matildas because, Josh, ever since Tony Gustafsson has come in and we ever since Stadge left the job, Tell me what has changed. Tell me what has come into place. Mm. Tell me the style of play that has said, you know what, we did the right thing. I, I'm not going to comment on the start, the stage situation. That's, you know, that's gone. That's long gone. But after that, decisions were made and clearly they were not made correctly like at the end of the day. Yeah, so... In terms of the decision-making process for appointing this coach, they seem to have looked at his CV 
um, and coaching the U.S. Uh, women's national team as an assistant. And the positive glowing reviews from the former U.S. national team players saying he's our tactician, blah, blah, blah. And Tony G, for better or worse, is going to present himself well in an interview setting. You know, he's very polished. He's very good with the media. He's very good, um, you know, presenting to camera, I suppose. And he's, very, he's a charming, good-looking guy. So, you know, easy to win over an executive type in that kind of setting once you get an interview. Uh, but the logic that I'm questioning is why we should be comparing ourselves to the US in the first place. Are they the model to follow? Because uh, as Teo pointed out um, on the national curriculum the other night, they have, what, 10,000 college graduates every year. Their player base is huge. They get the best athletes. They get their, their, uh, their athletic potential is so much higher than Australia's because they have so many more players to pick from and their production line is so much more prolific um, that playing in that kind of, uh, I guess, all-out physical fashion will be enough for the United States to win things, maybe less so going into the future, but certainly was in the past. The model for us to emulate, we've got to look to other countries, European countries, in terms of style of play. And it's the style of play that concerns me the most. Because if Australia had generated heaps of attacking chances and just not taken them, then maybe you get unlucky on the night. That can always happen in football. But although there were missed opportunities, you know, Australia are just pumping it long at every available chance. Um, Ante pointed out in his article, Ante Jukic for ESPN, uh, that around 10% of Australia's passes... Uh, in the group stage, we're hit long. 46 times a match, we go long. And that is clearly a coaching directive because that is a much higher figure than any of our other comparable nations in that tournament. Any of the other group winners were playing short pass possession football, building from the back, rather than pumping it into the area, pumping crosses, trying to pick out their striker's head, in our case, Sam Kerr, and thrive on the the chaos that ensues. I don't think that's a sustainable approach to win, and it comes back to Australia not having a proper technical director in charge overseeing all of this and holding a head coach responsible for the style of play that we're trying to promulgate amongst our national teams. Josh, my biggest problem with when we play these crosses and these long balls, Sam Kerr is one of the best goal scorers. I, I don't even want to use the term striker because I think that everyone in this country is pigeonholed in her into this role of a striker, but she's, she's just a really prolific goal scorer. And she's more than a striker. My issue with us constantly doing this Tim Cahill-esque crossing the ball in and seeing she gets a header and, you know, figuring it out is, has that has anybody looked at the European players and looked at the American players? They are giants, actual giants. So when we always face them, that tactic never seems to work. So why is it that we don't play on the ground? And we have people, we have players who can play on the ground. So like it's as it's as if we are not looking. We're not looking at what the best attributes are. I feel like every single player that comes into the Matilda squad needs to fill out a sheet. Goes, hey Tony G, these are my three best skills. These are my three worst skills. Okay, and the Tony G should always have them next to him on the side of side. Maybe of the maybe top. you can have a look at their FIFA player ratings or something instead, Honestly, just so he gets to know where their best positions are. And Emily Van Egmond can put a big red cross around the defensive yes. midfield position saying, don't put me here. I can't play there. I see these flip books that, you know, when the players, the substitute is coming on the flip book or whatever. There, yeah? <laughs> Next to it needs to clearly be, you can't play this person in there. You can't play this person. Maybe then we might get better decision-making from Tony G. So you reckon flashcards yeah. and, and last cards. large Maybe visual aids in bright colours? 
I know the AFL, you know, like they, because they, they can't do as many substitutions anymore. They've got those big cards. Maybe that's what we need. We need, we need new and creative ideas, Josh, because clearly everybody's lost their mind. Mm. Everybody is just, ha- has forgotten these simple things. Football has always been played on the ground, okay? Why are the Matildas un- like trying to, you know, force something? What? Josh, well, I feel stressed out. It, yeah, and it's okay. it's ugly to watch. Even when it works, it's ugly to watch. You know, it, it worked is. against Great Britain in the uh, Olympics, but we had a Chaos terrible ball. tournament. Absolutely terrible tournament. I mean, that match against the US, that nil-all draw, was one of the worst games I've ever seen in any football code ever. Josh, I like to re-watch. Like, I'll re-watch, like, matches just to, like, like you know, because you've watched the first time mm. and it's all emotion and you watch the second time and you're, like, trying to figure it out, right? And... That USA game, I couldn't turn it on again. I said, burn it. Burn it and get it away from me. I don't want I don't want any statistic from it. I don't know what I don't care if somebody got a cap in there. I don't care. That game was traumatic, a traumatic experience. Mm. And this game against South Korea was good for the first like 20 minutes. The Matildas were doing something, and then everybody just turned off and everybody was just like. Well, but the thing is that that's, I think that arises from the style. It's less of a mentality thing. It's a yeah. stylistic thing because teams that can press usually can um, set the cat amongst the pigeons against inferior opposition in the first 20 minutes. They can put them under, essentially. And then eventually, like, decent sides like South Korea will settle and the game will fall into more of a pattern and the wave of energy and the buzz from the first few minutes of the match will, will subside and then you'll see what the teams are really, truly capable of. And once that burst of energy subsided, Matildas were yep. extremely limited. They were found out. And in terms of the the style of play and how to actually create chances and play through the midfield and break teams down, Gustafsson has shown no propensity for that. So regardless of the result, regardless of whether we win or lose, regardless of whether we beat Great Britain in a, a semi, uh, not a semifinal, a quarterfinal in the Olympics that goes to extra time. We happen to score a late equaliser and then Tegan Micah has the game of her life and we somehow squeak through. doesn't make it a good performance. And honestly, I don't think we're going to do anything at the World Cup with this guy in charge. And that's why I don't think we should be wedded to him. I think we need to break the bank, get rid of him and try and bring in a Montemoro type, try and bring in a better coach because... This World Cup is the most important moment in Australian football. And there is no bigger there is no bigger calling than saying to Joe Montemora, one of the greatest coaches that we've produced, certainly in the women's game, uh, that we need you come home and coach a home World Cup. There is no bigger honour in the sport. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but there... I just don't think it's going to happen. He just got to you. If let, let's let's say this, yeah. If this had happened when he was at Arsenal last year, with only a little bit left on his contract, I think for sure the Matildas can get him. But he only just got to Juve, and he has shown that he likes to build, and he is not going to leave Juve when he just got there because they are actually building something. If Juve were potentially struggling, like really, really struggling, maybe the Matildas have a chance to get him. But I don't think there is a chance. And I don't, I asked this on Twitter, can anybody actually explain to me why Tony, I'm not sorry, Joe Montemiro would want the Matildas job? Well, I mean, it's a prestigious gig. And, you know, potentially being a hero back home at, at a home World Cup, 
I mean, and he knows all the players as well. He's already familiar with them from Melbourne City and from Arsenal. You know, he wouldn't need he wouldn't need much of a a briefing. I mean, he wouldn't need much of a run up to get this team playing. Well, so, I have a question for you: How broken do you think this Matildas team is? How like broken is the system? Well, the system is a complete shambles. But a decent so how- a decent coach with principles beyond who fit long to Sam Kerr and let's focus on set pieces, maybe, I think could get them playing. Maybe me and you are different in that I, I I don't like short-term fixes. I'm not a fan. I've never been a fan of short-term fixes in any aspect of life. Mm. I think that you have to, you have to like start from the beginning and, and give like, and fully fix it. Right. So if we were to get Joe Montemore, I would rather have us got him with a two years, three years to actually like to really do something as opposed to a quick fix. And then we get to the world cup and we don't do anything. But that's like, the, that's the thing Pakua though, is that it's a home world cup. It is the most important thing in the short term. It's in, we've got 18 months and if you're going to change coaches, you have to do it now. Otherwise it will be too late for a coach to make an impact. And I remember back in 2005 when we had Frank Farina in charge of the national team, performances weren't good enough. We had a playoff game against Uruguay coming up and Football Australia or FFA as they were then known, stumped up the cash to get Gus Hiddink and we made it and it changed the sport forever. And if the Matildas were not necessarily to win the World Cup, I think that's probably beyond them, but to to put in a, not to win the World Cup, but to put in a reasonable performance to make the semifinals or just go take us on a good ride at a home World Cup and the buzz that that would generate for the sport would be a game changer. So I think they have to pull out all the stops here. I, 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 I think that they, they, I understand that thought like of getting someone else in, but I just think it's too late. Maybe I'm, I'm being very like, you know, like just being very like just suppressed about the whole situation. But for me, I think it's just too late to get someone who is going to change it so drastically and who is available, like actually available. If Draymond Smith was available, Josh, oh, 100%, 100%. I just don't think he's available, so I don't think it's well, a viable. Tony G doesn't live here either, so who would you rather have? Maybe maybe Joe can keep coaching Juve and he can use his international breaks to come coach the Matildas, do it, you know, football manager style, have the, the club team and then the international team at the same time. He was just down in Melbourne. Maybe Football Australia asked him to come down in Melbourne. That's maybe. I mean, you got to put the feelers out, surely. I mean, it's just this is this is not good enough. And I I think there are a lot of you know a lot of Matildas fans who are so emotionally invested in the team that they can't see the part. Like they 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 can't see the the disgrace that's unfolding in front of them because we've got a golden generation of players here and we're wasting them. Before we get onto that, I just want to say a quick thing about like the actual match with South Korea. Mm. I think this game clearly showed that the need for two number sixes, like so clear as day, because G for Chelsea is one of the best players in the world. And we needed a player just to just like block her the entire game. Mm. That is all we needed. And the fact that the Australian, like Tony G couldn't recognize that and didn't like, I've complained about how weak we are defensively for so long. The fact that we didn't re like change the formation for this game just bothered me, and I like that was just something I wanted we, to say. We didn't really game. lose control of it until Wheeler went off, though. Wheeler was doing a reasonable job in midfield; she was playing yeah, well. But, 
In but, credit where credit's due. No, no, hundred percent. Wheeler did fantastic, but if we Wheeler was able to, you know, you like play in the midfield effectively, and we had somebody else there just to, just to tag in the mm. mid in like the rest, don't you think we would have created more opportunities? I don't know about creating more, but you certainly wouldn't have allowed G the space that she got later on in the match. That's for sure. And I take that point. I mean, you know, you had one player to stop on the other team, really. Like one one world-class player and the rest of them were... She's worth five players, Josh. She killed Arsenal at the start of the season. She did. She's worth five players. No, I mean, she's, she's, a, she's a great footballer, but you look at the talent on the park, Australia yeah. compared to South Korea, and you look at the reaction of the players on the final whistle, the Korean players... They celebrated like they'd won the World Cup. This was a huge moment for them. There's no investment in women's football in South Korea. G was saying that herself. So, you know, for us, for Australia, for the Matildas to capitulate in this fashion, let's not start talking about how good South Korea were. Let's not start saying, all respect Asia, credit to South Korea. You know, well done to them, but we shot ourselves in the foot here. There's no mistaking that. I want to talk. Josh, about the narrative that goes with the Matildas. Because I actually think it's probably one of the most, I don't want to use the word disturbing, but I feel like it's the only word that I can use. Things that's like, I think it's also another thing that's, that's not on the pitch that's that we are, that we impact the way the Matildas like are run as fans. By the way in which people speak about the Matildas, so like, positively as, as if like as if because they're women in a weird way we're so like they are they're so fragile we can't criticize them I'm, like they can't take the criticism i i think these women are, are strong women and like, they can take the criticism comfortably that we can't keep going oh the matilda's gonna be okay everything's okay we live in this like no there is a clear problem and i wish more people when they spoke about the matilda's spoke honestly and actually gave like not just criticism to criticize but criticism to help the team Mm. i i couldn't agree more and i think it is the word i would use is condescending the discussion around the matildas our our golden gals etc and so on um because you know they are a proper team with good players who have a lot of potential and if they're not living up to that potential we need to start the conversation as to why. And that's the only way we progress is if we have these these discussions in the media, as fans, and also, you know, on the inside. I hope these discussions are being had uh, and we're not just ignoring the obvious, you know, fire in the living room and sitting there and staring into the middle distance and saying, this is fine. Like, I'm just, all I'm trying to do is apply the same level of scrutiny to the Matildas as I would to a men's team. That's all. I'm not trying to, but with these criticisms, and I know I've been pretty vehement tonight, but trying, I'm not trying to participate in like the stage culture war or whatever. I don't care about that stuff. I just want the team to be good. And that's why, you know, sometimes you've got to be honest. And, you know, this is, I mean, you say, the interesting part of that is you say that the Matildas can take the criticism, but I think there's been a bit of a fragile mentality that it's d- developed. I mean, you look at Sam Kerr's tweet, for example, you know, after the the group stage, no one watches you more than your haters. Give them a show. And yes, that's a I'm a Nike ad campaign or whatever. But you know, she would have approved that. Like she's got this, I, I guess, mentality of you're either with us or you're against us. And I don't think that helps. I think that for me, that's because I think it's 
been going on for so long, this like, because everybody in this country is so afraid that women's football is going to fail. They are so, so afraid. For so long, we've been like, oh, yeah, like, you can do it. Everything like, but if we'd started with actual constructive criticism as opposed to just criticizing people like with, you know, without any like basis, mm. I think that maybe then these players would be more welcome to it. But it, I, I can understand how it would feel as if it's been, we've taken a sharp turn from, you know, all this positive and then we're just like being really critical. Mm. The Matildas deserve criticism. I don't, I'm not criticizing the way in which like the, like the way they play, because I think they always play hard and, and that's like, I could never fault them for that. But the playing style, and I, I think we need to have more voices from these players. Like we're not in the camp, so we don't know. But I think if they were like, if they were more vocal, we might not have these, these formations and these selections coming up, like constantly occurring. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because, you know, you get picked by the coach or the coaching staff, I guess, have a role, clearly, in this particular regime. Um, so you don't want to say anything bad about the coach. And that was exacerbated with Chloe Legazzo on Channel 10 as an injured player. Very awkward, wasn't it? It was so awkward. I Look, I can understand why they put her up there, but I think Channel 10 were going into this uh, tournament thinking, oh, this is going to be a procession, we're going to win, it's going to be great. And it's going to be great to have her there to say how good, look at my teammates, look at what they've done. Then when you lose and you go out in the quarterfinals in humiliating fashion and you've got her sitting there next to an apoplectic Andy Harper giving it both barrels and she can't say anything bad about the team or the coach because she doesn't want to damage those existing relationships because she's trying to get back in time for the World Cup from that ACL tear. She she believes she can make it and, and all power to her. I, I, that's that was hard to watch for me. It was really yeah. awkward, and I actually applaud her for being uh, so poised in what she said, for straddling that fine line that she had to straddle. But of course, she held back. Of course, she did, because who wouldn't in that situation? Yeah. And that's why it's hard for the players to speak up, I guess, because just, they don't want to lose their spot. I'm not asking anybody to go out in the media to criticize, because that's mm. we're not trying to kill careers here. That's that's not what I want. Okay, right? <laughs> I want people to get paid, but. <laughs> I mean, in those camps, like, mm. I want to know what conversations they're having about this team. And, and because Tony G's been, I can't remember the exact number of games Tony G's coached, but Chloe Garzo did say that in those camps, it feels like it feels so wonderful and that, you know, but if it feels that wonderful, are we having enough, like, critical conversations? Because mm. that's the question that the, the, what left, what I was left with, I was like, I get it's all wonderful and rosy and dandy there, but are you guys like afraid that your places are going to go? Like, I, and uh, you know, nobody wants to work in a workplace that's that's you know toxic like that. But I mean, in the sense of yeah, honestly, you know, constantly, constantly battling for knowing that I have to you know be on my game, otherwise I'm gonna you know lose my position. Is that there? Because I'm starting to doubt that it is. Look, honestly, I, I don't think the mentality of the players is necessarily the problem. I think some players have become comfortable knowing that they'll be selected every time, and that's an issue. But I think the bigger issue is just the aims that this team sets out to achieve from a coaching perspective uh, and how misguided they are. I, I, I don't think they're trying and failing to play football. I think they're trying to play Route 1 nonsense and then surprise when it doesn't work out. 
because there was a free kick on the halfway line that uh, we pumped into the box. They, we put seven players in the box and pumped into the box, and it was right next to the benches. And obviously that's a directive. Yes, we're going to put it in the box every time we get a chance. And Gustafsson, all he ever talks about in the press conference is belief and mentality and so forth. And I don't think the Matildas needed a mentality coach. I think this was already, already a never-say-die team. I think they needed a tactical coach who could help them with their issues in terms of playing out from the back, moving the team together up the pitch, creating chances. And I don't know why we hired the Swedish Ted Lasso to do that. I think we needed somebody a little bit more qualified in the tactics department. I think that's the root of the problem here, really. I don't don't really think it's a mentality issue um, because I think this team is tough. They're just, what they're being asked to do isn't productive. Josh, you know, I, I'm, I feel exhausted. Just every time I think about this team, I feel like I've run three marathons. Mm. And the I've never been a massive, like, the USA have always won, but I've never, like, you know, in recent years, they aren't the best team in world football. Like, I know they won the last World Cup. I understand it. But I don't think anyone was disillusioned thinking they were, like, by far and away playing the best football. So to get Tony G from, you know, the US, the US national team and then expecting to be a tactical genius, I think that there was the problem. Yeah. And it all goes back to the decisions made after Football Australia let um, Stags go. So uh, the, the, it's, it, the, the core of this, like, the building blocks for Football Australia clearly needs to have a deep, you know, they need to humble mm. themselves and look deep within and get some serious answers. Well, and it was one of the first decisions the new board made. So I think certain reputations have been staked on this appointment. So if they have to go back on it, you know, they'll be left with egg on their face and that's an issue too. Uh, I'm going to finish this segment with just one anecdote, one story that I heard, an unconfirmed sort of, sort of, sort of story, but on the grapevine. And it was one of the training camps and it was described to me uh, that in this drill it was 11 on 11. The midfield may not, may as well not have been there. That they were switching. This is before the Olympics. They were switching the ball out to the right side at centre back or the right wing back, playing a big long diagonal to the top left corner and trying to find Sam Kerr's head. And even when the ball missed its target completely and it went out for a throw in, the coaching staff were still applauding and saying, good job. And like, the aims and aspirations of this team are totally warped, are totally backward, are prehistoric in in their How thinking. And I just, I, it just, it's just not going to work. We're not going to win a World Cup and we're not going to even perform respectably at a World Cup playing that way. We're going to turn people off the game. More, oh, more yeah. eyeballs than ever will be on these home World Cup games. And they see, and fancy us playing like that, they're never going to watch it again. We need to start, um, you know, adjudicating some fines to people. For kicking the ball, far, okay. I don't want to see crosses before the halfway line, like long crosses across. I don't want to see it, okay. I want us to push and press, okay. We got Ali Carpenter and Steph Catley. We like, come on, let's let's have common sense here. We don't need this irrational level of football being played. All right, let's take a break there, Pakur, and uh, let's try and lower our collective blood pressure. And on the other side, we've got some A-League women to talk about. Two of the most entertaining games of the entire season, overshadowed by this Matilda's result, as well as a sinkhole, a sinkhole on the pitch. Stay tuned. Radio Dub. 
Pickett, she lays it off, Teresa Polias! It's an absolute peach! Yes, driving! What a hit from Melina Rez! Wow! And Sam Kerr has a hat-trick! Meet him up, one Time to talk A-League women here on Radio Dub. Two thrilling games, but I think we'll start at Marconi Stadium, Western Sydney taking on Adelaide United. And we had a long delay for kickoff here because for the game, pitch inspection, referees discovered a sinkhole. And I was a little worried when I heard that. I was thinking, you know, those video compilations of houses being swallowed and like other players safe for people running for their lives. Apparently, it was only a only your uh, your garden variety uh, sinkhole that was able to be to to be filled before the game took place, and the players sort of managed to avoid that section of the field as you would. Uh, but you know, it is peak A League or peak A League women's, I suppose. Uh, but Bakua, do you fear for the the players' safety and the integrity of the competition when this kind of thing happens? Yes, Josh, because a sinkhole doesn't just. Is there, there's got to be something before a sinkhole, surely. <laughs> You're telling me everybody was walking around just eyes shut, couldn't see a thing? Like the sinkhole had to have been there for a good solid period of time. I mean, I think it was underneath the turf, so it wasn't visible until I think you applied. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a geologist, Pakua. <laughs> Josh, uh, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit concerned that we aren't seeing these kinds of things in this country. Maybe not Tony G needs glasses. We all need glasses at this point because sinkhole, oh, scary. But without a sinkhole, what a what a good entertaining game. Adelaide United coming out with a strong three 0 victory. And Chelsea Dorber scoring twice in that game. Kayla Sharples, who I think has been one of the breakout stars of this season at centre back for Adelaide, uh, scoring the Kayla first goal. Kayla, I, I that's that's what I said. I think Kayla Sharples. Maybe it's the Zoom. Maybe I'm yeah, not Zoom, Zoom compression. We'll blame that. Uh, but Western Sydney uh, consigned to another defeat. Uh, that club, both men's and women's, in absolute uh, turmoil at the moment. Uh, but Adelaide United go up to third on the A League women's table, and and you've been pretty impressed by them so far this season. I think I think you've been proved right. Josh, I am I am an Adelaide United stan at this point. <laughs> I am anything they do. I am here for them because they are fun. They go, they like try every single game and they are creative and they are getting rewards for it. Like um, Fiona, Fiona Watts didn't score today um, on the weekend, but she's been one of my favorite players this entire season. And she's really combined that help that front three be very prolific. And Chelsea Dorber got two goals, very deserved. I, the, I think that the coaching job by, um, I've forgotten his Adrian Stenter. Stenter. I can't. I can't say the last name properly. Is it Stenter? Stanton. Uh, I've. You've put me on the spot here. I know it's no, Adrian. I, yeah. <laughs> Adrian yeah. Stenter. Yeah. You. You, you shouldn't have doubted had, yourself. Thank you. He has done a tremendous job to unify this team and to have a, like an identity because every time I see them play, they play the same and they play well. And I, I think that that's something that is really vital, especially in the the dub, because some teams have like a constantly changing their playing pattern and or don't have an identity and they struggle to mm. be consistent. Well, Adelaide United flying, uh, Western Sydney season, meanwhile, going down the sinkhole. 
Uh, Brisbane Raw one, Melbourne Very City nice two. Question. I was just I was waiting until you finished speaking so I could do that line. To be honest, um, Brisbane Raw one, Melbourne City two. The story of Brisbane Raw's season as they play brilliantly and then give away the winning position in the last fifteen minutes of the match. Uh, two free kicks, one direct free kick from Rihanna Polizina finding the top corner, uh, and then putting it on a platter. A perfect delivery for. The competition star striker Hannah Wilkinson to net a 94th minute header and consign Brisbane to another poor result. I just felt so sorry for them in this game. Josh, luck is a beautiful thing. Um, Melbourne City have been lucky and Brisbane Raw have been constantly unlucky. This I think season. they're cursed. They are. They are cursed. And they've also, they've also caused a lot of their own issues because it, let's say they didn't, they lost, they lose this game. I think there are games at the start of the season that they shouldn't have lost, particularly the games against Perth, which I don't want to go over again. I've criticized those games enough, but they are, they, but they at least have something. If they can keep this core together next season, you know, in the dub, everything's always changing and it's highly unlikely, but they do have something and the luck will turn. Unfortunately for them, the A-League women's season is very short. So even if it does turn, sometimes it just turns too late for them. So the free kick that was given away for the winning goal was an off-the-ball foul from Holly Palmer on Leah Davidson. It's totally not related to the play. Katrina Gorey had the ball. The referee actually did well to see it, uh, the, mm-hmm. the sort of pullback to stop uh, Davidson from pressing Gorey. And the look that Gorey gave Holly Palmer, the daggers that she gave her a Knowing that what was about to happen, knowing that history was about to repeat itself, I reckon that look could have cut glass. <laughs> she's practicing her mum's there, you know, just <laughs> looking at you from the cross. It's like no words, and you know that's the one that hurts the most. It's that stare because you know you are in so much trouble, and there are no words going to be spoken. Um, <laughs> I feel like you're speaking I, from experience there. I am, Josh. I am most certainly speaking from experience, but I will say that. Holly Palmer did almost score an absolute worldie mm. in the last minute of the game. They were two chances at scoring Brisbane in the last minute. So she almost made up for it. But I still think that I'm – Katrina Gore seems like a lovely person, so I'm sure she would have forgiven her. But in that moment, Holly Palmer was like, take me away <laughs> right now. Please let the sinkhole take me away. <laughs> I mean, that was a great save at the end. Double save, in fact, from Bubs, Melissa Barbieri. She doesn't age. Bubs doesn't age. She, she's fantastic. I want to be like Bubs when I grow up. Be like Which Bubs. Which is a long way to go. What would Bubs do? That's going to be the wristband that I wear. Uh, but when you have a segment on the show, what would Bubs do? <laughs> uh, her post-match interview was a classic, by the way. She was just amped. And uh, unfortunately, she called it the, the W League, so we'll have to put one in the swear jar for, for Melissa Ooh, Barbieri. But. Know. But apart from that terrific interview, she was just adrenaline pumping, 42 years young, still doing great things between the sticks for Melbourne City as they snuck another win uh, to extend their lead at the top, well, up the, t- the second place in the table, I should say, my, my mistake. Sydney FC still top of the league with 22 points, Melbourne City uh, trailing on 18. But they keep within touching distance. Uh, Newcastle Jets 3, Canberra United 3, a goal after... Less than a minute in this game yeah. from uh, Markison, absolute belter. But the entertainment didn't end there. 
Josh, the entertainment hadn't started yet. What a frantic few minutes. I didn't know where to turn. I was like, wait, didn't we just go, wait, wait, what another goal? I was looking around dazed and confused because I said, don't they say that, you know, the, the first five minutes after a goal are the most critical time in football? Clearly nobody told the Jets or the Canberra United players because they, they were so confused after the first, the second and the third. Yeah, I mean, that was, what, three goals in the second half in the space three of less minutes. than four minutes, maybe three minutes? Yep. Crazy. It's just just great, okay. great stuff, end-to-end, great entertainment. Um, but I was speaking to the commentator of this match, Teo Pelletzeri, the other night. Have we had him on the show before? Uh, yes, just just, a, oh. just once or twice. Uh, yes. Yeah. yes, yes, yes. Uh, but he put forward, I think, a surprising take, uh, but he might be onto something here, uh, that... Marie Dolvik Markerson of the Newcastle Jets is the best player in the league. Ooh. She's only played three games. She's going he's going early, but Very she has been good. on Wolfsburg's books. She's played for Valorenga as well, a good team in the women's game. I mean, it's a it's a big shout, but the goal she scored certainly seemed like she's uh she's got pedigree. Josh, I'm gonna reserve my opinion on that. I, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if I can. Sample size is small at this point. Very small. And I don't, I actually don't know who I think is the best player. I know who I think is playing the best this season, but I don't know who I think is the best player. So I'm, I'm going to take a step back. I trust her. If he thinks that, I, I think that there's something there, but I don't know if he's, if I 100% agree just yet. Maybe that's a question for next week. We can go away and do some long, hard thinking about who the best we, player in the league is. I think we need to also do a team of the season so far because we are, well, I think we're past the halfway point at this point. Um, mm. So I think we need to, maybe that's the thing we do next show, Josh. Maybe that's what we do. In the last game of the round, Perth Glory 3, Wellington 2. Uh, Wellington, oh. so unlucky again. Josh, I really like Wellington. They actually play. I feel so bad for them because because they've shown that they can win. They just lack that experience. Because unfortunately, I was watching the game and I said it like 60th minute to myself, they're not going to win this game. They just don't unfortunately know how to, you know, put this game mm. to, to bed. But Perth Glory and Alex Sapakis... I said his name correctly. I don't want to butcher these European last names. He has done one of the best jobs this season in coaching. He might be up there for coach of the season because the way he's, you know, managed to get Perth to this point after a very difficult last season, season last year, I think they've done a tremendous job and they should be very proud of themselves, Perth Glory. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the Victorian Revolution over in WA. Um, uh, they, they've got quite a few players. They've they've pinched from Enfield Victoria. Sophia Sakalas being one of them, and uh, she manages to, to to score yesterday as well. Uh, Sydney FC Brisbane Raw is tomorrow night. Katrina Gorey will be sticking around until the end of the A League Women's season before she departs uh, for Sweden. I think I think it's Sweden or is it Norway? Anyway, Scandinavia somewhere. Um, so that's a that's a boost for Brisbane Raw, but it's going to be tough for them uh, to get a result against the top team in the league. You know how I feel about Sydney, Josh. I love them. 
they know how to play football and they play football so well. And lucky for them, so I think Sydney, Melbourne, v, Melbourne City, uh, no, sorry, Melbourne Victory, they might be the two of the happiest that, um, what's it, the Asian uh, Cup's finished because mm. Sydney FC, they, their other players held it down for them. Now Courtney Vine's going to be back and Remy Seamson's going to be back. They are going to run away with this league. And I cannot wait to see Courtney Vine just destroy people on the wings. Well, that'll be a boost for them, of course. I don't think those Matildas players will be uh, back in time to play a no, part. Certainly not, this, not for this yeah. game, but for uh, their next fixture, which isn't until Sunday the 13th of Feb. Uh, other games coming up in uh, the round to come. Adelaide United, Newcastle Jets, for me, looks like a really tasty one. Uh, Wellington playing Melbourne Victory. Canberra United playing Perth Glory, which should be a good game as well. And you'd expect Melbourne City will get the job done against the Western Sydney Wanderers. team against the worst attack in the league. That's going to be a tough watch, that uh, Melbourne City-Western Sydney game. Yeah, that's that's got a 1-0 uh, all over it. Or maybe it could be more emphatic than that. But yeah, uh, yeah uh, I've certainly Melbourne City, very well organised. And Western Sydney, how many goals have they scored this season? Three. Two. Still only two and eight. It's not, not, not pretty ready. And one of them's a penalty. Yes. Yes, indeed. It was a Briley Henry penalty, in fact. Um, Pakua, I think that's all we've got time for on tonight's edition of Radio Dub. Thank you for, uh, for dialing in remotely to do this show. And hopefully before long, we'll have you back in the studio. Hopefully, Josh, I shall be back. It's, it was good. It was good being back. It felt I felt cleansed, you know, getting to say my opinion. <laughs> well, we always love hearing them as well. Uh, so, Katrina Gorey's mum stare, I think, was my highlight of today. But if you've missed any of it, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast. And if you want to check out what our partners over at the Global Institute of Sport are doing, head to gis.sport/fnr to kickstart your career in football business. Their masters in football business kicking off very, very shortly. It's an exciting program to be a part of. One of our FNR alums, Tom Flukabaka, who's uh, jetting off to England very soon, uh, certainly speaks highly of the program. So uh, if you want to check out their socials, uh, you can see uh, an ex-FNR man uh, lauding uh, this educational institution who uh, have this specific football bent. Uh, But from myself, Josh Parrish, and Pakua Frimpong, it is goodbye for now, and we'll chat to you next week on Radio Dub. Pickett, she lays it off, Teresa Polaris! It's an absolute peach! Is driving! What a hit from Melina Reyes! Wow! And Sam Kerr has a hat-trick! Meet him up, 1-0!